0: This morning, we'll get to explore the hope of heaven together, and I know that for some, what the Bible says about heaven is, is nice, but maybe not that practical. Um, I grew up with the phrase, you know, you don't want to be so heavenly-minded that you become no earthly good, and the Bible's going to challenge us this morning uh, to consider that if, if heaven, uh, hope in heaven, has no practical impact on our lives, then I think it's logical to conclude that hopelessness also has no practical impact on our lives, and I think you and I know that it does. Our passage this morning in Isaiah 25 tells us that the hope of heaven is real, it's concrete, and it's worth looking forward to. So let's hear a reading from God's
1: word. A reading from Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For a breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands, And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father God,
0: we do thank you for this text, a text of great hope. um, As we look to the future, we pray that you would help us to understand the great hope that you've laid before us, how this world is not all that there is, but we have something to look forward to. Encourage our hearts, be here with us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My first memory, my very first memory after becoming an ordained minister, I was ordained on a Sunday, and that very first Monday, I believe, I got a call at 6 a.m. in the morning. My throat was still scratchy, just waking up. And on the other end of the line was a young woman in her 20s uh, from our church, and she had been babysitting her newborn niece. And, uh, you know, her sister and brother-in-law were taking a much-needed date night and during that date night, the baby died. I received the tear-filled call after all the panic through the night, the trip to the hospital, and the pronouncement of the baby's death. I learned that sudden infant death syndrome was a real thing. Now, she didn't have the luxury to think about the horrors of death later. It came, and she, um, she called me because she needed to hear something of God's comfort, something hopeful And I had been a pastor for five minutes, I didn't have any words for her, but she called precisely to hear something. And my instinct was to pray, and the only prayer that came to my mind was uh, the hope that we find in this morning's passage and its corresponding text in Revelation 21. My prayer acknowledged that God knew our tears, that He promised to wipe them away and to make sure that this would never happen to His children again. And so as I read Isaiah 25, I read how much God hates the death that threatens his creation. He has something to say in the face of death so that you and I can have true and genuine hope. And so what we'll see this morning is that hope in heaven is first part of God's plan, secondly is concrete in its promises, and thirdly is to some, a hope to be enjoyed. Now before I get too far, I want to say that when I say heaven, what I mean is what most of us think about when we think about heaven. It's, it's the, the final thing we think about, the final state of our salvation in eternity, what the Bible technically calls the new heavens and the new earth. And so the first thing I want us to see is that uh, in verse 1, God tells us that we can hope in heaven because it's part of God's plan. He is totally in control of that plan, and will see it to completion. Take a look at verse 1 with me again. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Isaiah references God's faithfulness in the past so that when he transitions to the future in verse 6, we can know that the same God who kept his promises in the past will keep his promises in the future, for the future. And I want us to marvel at the fact that God has a plan in the first place. Um, The fact that God has a plan means that life is progressing, it's moving forward. It tells us that life and time is linear. Life is neither a s- stagnant nor is it an endless, meaningless, repeating cycle. Heaven tells us that we're not just moving forward, we're moving towards a destination. That's good. You know, the college campus is full of people who have plans for their future. Uh, that's what makes all the hard work worth it. My favorite plans I've heard uh, are, are this one. One is, uh, there's a guy who just graduated And his plan is to make several millions of dollars by the time he's 40 and then retire. And how is he going to accomplish this? He's going to stay at home and have his parents pay all of his expenses. And that was his plan. The other really grand plan, fantastic plan, was to become an an NFL referee. Now, these plans, they're grand and they're awesome. uh, But they're, they're really plans for greatness. I've never heard anyone say that when I graduate college, I expect nothing to happen. I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to do anything. That would be ridiculous, right? And you might be surprised that that's the number one thing I hear from people when they, when I ask them, what do you think happens when you die? The number one answer is not heaven. Uh, It is, it's it's just all going to end. It'll come to nothingness. It'll just stop. You know, a well-known pastor in our denomination helpfully observes that the thing that keeps people going in a world uh, without a plan for a better future after death is optimism, which is, as you know, looking at the glass as half full rather than half empty. My own natural disposition is to be optimistic. I think it's part of my personality and also part of my Christian faith. And I find that uh, it's usually a good thing. People usually like being around optimistic people, tend to be a little bit happier. Um, but optimistic people can also be kind of annoying. Which, when someone is going through some real pain, my optimistic comments um, are, you know, looking at the brighter side, are really, you know, a little bit tone-deaf and insensitive. Optimism has nothing to say in the face of real pain, life-threatening sickness, and especially death. I was confiding in a friend about a difficult circumstance that I'm currently going through. Uh, One of my family members, close family members, has shunned me, and I'm not going to go into the details about that, um, but it's really painful. And as I began to explain uh, about what was going on, optimism mode sort of kicked in, and I started to whitewash the situation in my mind. I was trying to make the painful situation seem not that bad, and I also began to make excuses for that family member, uh, saying, you know, you know, they had a hard upbringing, or uh, you know, maybe they weren't loved when they were younger. Um, and my friend listened patiently, and then you know what he said? He said, you know, Brian... Uh, Sometimes optimism can be a cover for a lack of faith or unbelief, and I had never heard that before. He was saying that, you know, instead of looking to God and trusting in his promises through a, a genuinely painful and hurtful situation, I was trying to essentially pretend that it wasn't so bad. That's what I was looking towards, and my friend wasn't scolding me for having a lack of faith. He wanted me to see that God can do better. He can do better than letting us lie to ourselves about real pain suffering and death and in order for a hope to heaven our our hope in heaven to be greater than mere optimism it has to be concrete and that's exactly what we have in the promises of heaven god's future promises are not some nebulous it'll get better but god gives us concrete and specific promises god's promises concretely he promises to concretely put an end to suffering to wipe away the tears that we cry, to swallow up death forever. But notice what's bookending this picture of hope that we love to cling to. It's a lot of judgment. Take a look at verse two. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruiner. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And the following verses is this very vivid picture of someone drowning in a dunghill. That's the judgment that God has. And Isaiah wants us to see that hope in heaven comes right alongside God's judgment or his justice. And I realize that that's uncomfortable. Talking about God's judgment is always uncomfortable until I remember how God actually displays his judgment or his justice in the lives of real people in, in, in the Bible. What ruthless foreigners is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about all, all foreigners? No. He wants you to think about real things that have happened in the past. We might think about Egypt that enslaved the Israelites for 400 years and oppressed them so hard. Uh, them being defenseless slaves, God had to intervene supernaturally to free them from their slave masters in Egypt. When you think about that and God's judgment, we begin to understand what he's doing We actually need to hope in God's concrete wrath and judgment. Otherwise, he won't be what he is in verse 4. Take a look. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. Now, that was the past, but in Isaiah's present context, Israel was once again subjugated by the brutal and ruthless Babylonians. Now, what does this all mean for us? As Isaiah talks about foreign and ruthless enemies, he's showing us that death really is our great enemy that he will defeat. He's he's drawing that analogy from what Israel is going through. Let me say this again. Death is not a welcome friend. And that's that's often what I see uh, either read in books or things I see on TV and movies. I remember growing up with one of my favorite cartoon movies, "The Lion King," and hearing about the great circle of life. remember Mufasa? he tells his son Simba that the lions eat the antelope and then they die and become grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and so we 're all part of the great circle of life and I remember the great so- you remember the soothing music in the background oomama um, mama um, ma, ma, right and then it crescendos to the circle of life right it, and it 's awesome and you 're like yeah that 's yeah, you know, that's a good picture of what our lives ought to be. Uh, Let's look at a more realistic, uh, a real story uh, about that, of looking at life that way. There was once a seven-year-old boy whose three-year-old cousin had died, and he asked his mother where his cousin was now. And since she didn't believe in heaven or afterlife, she didn't have integrity telling them that he had gone to heaven, and so she said, well, he's gone back to the way of the earth where we all came from. Um, And so, you know, when you see the flowers next spring, just know that your cousin's life is fertilizing those flowers. And the seven-year-old boy, you know how he responded? He screamed and ran away and said, I don't want him to become fertilizer. But I think that that seven-year-old is more honest than I think a lot of adults are when I speak about this subject. Death was never the way it was meant to be. And God gives us a picture of death through the lived experience of Israel being threatened by real nations with formidable and intimidating armies These armies were a tangible picture of death. It is the enemy that threatens—death is the enemy that threatens every human being in this world. Now, I've never been to war. I'm not a soldier. um, But I had an experience that helped me glimpse a little bit about what it looks like to encounter a real enemy. Uh, My wife and I uh, got to travel to Seoul, South Korea last summer in part of our adoption process. There were two parts— one the first trip was more administrative. We had to fill out a lot of paperwork and go to Korean family court so that they could check us out. And the second trip was where we actually took custody of Archer. But on the first trip, there was a ton of downtime, and so we were encouraged to do touristy things. And so as I was looking up things that we could do um, that were well, honest, free, um, I found the Korean War Museum, and uh, so we, we visited there. And I did not learn a lot about the Korean War in my history class, which is um, neither here nor there. I just, I just didn't know a lot about it. And so as we made our way sort of from the ground level up and up to the final crescendo on the very top floor, there was this monument that really struck me. Uh, it said in very large letters, Freedom is not free. And then there was this great stone sculpture. Um, and it depicted all kinds of weapons and bullets and guns and airplanes and tanks and men that is not my normal. When I think about peace and freedom, that is not the normal picture that I have. Um, and it made an impression on me that sort of just wanting or wishing for peace or freedom uh, that doesn't really work when you face a real enemy that is coming after you. Uh, now, if you think that you know that type of picture is kind of warmongery, I want to remind you how the Korean War started when the North Koreans came into South Korea and started. Uh, what they rolled up in was tanks and real military weapons into the South Koreans' police force. They didn't have any army to defend themselves. They just had the police. And uh, the, the enemy had greater resources. And if outside forces hadn't stepped in for South Korea, it certainly would have been defeated. Old Testament Israel did not have the luxury of ignoring their enemies. And we don't have the luxury of sort of just wishing that the horrors of death will go away. It is coming and we need someone to deliver us. Uh, in Isaiah, there's actually another co- uh, contextual complication. The reason that Israel needed to be rescued in Isaiah's context was because they actually abandoned God in the first place. They turned their backs on God on God to worship um, other gods, and God rejected them from the land. And so the judgment or the justice of God was not partial or prejudiced. The Bible says that, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the same judgment that God promises to direct towards Israel's enemies was actually turned and directed towards Israel itself when they abandoned and turned their back on God to go after other gods. And so the enemies that are outside of us are ruthless, but we also have an enemy from within. And if that's the case, we have to ask, how will we be saved And the answer is that Jesus would have to come and defeat death. He did that on the cross when he gave his own perfect life to satisfy God's wrath and judgment against his enemies who deserved it. Our passage says death will be swallowed forever. And the only way that would happen, according to God's plan, is that death would swallow Jesus first. Except it could not have any victory over Jesus. He rose from the dead to proclaim hope for anyone who wishes to be reconciled to God. I like how one commentator put it, the darkness of death swallowed Jesus. He entered it, but then he blew a hole out the back of it. It had no right over him because he was innocent, and now it it has no ultimate right over those who put their faith in him. And so how can we be sure? How can we be sure that this is true? God uses an image of a feast to assure us, to comfort us. Heaven is a hope that we look forward to enjoy. The symbol and image that you can be sure that death will actually be defeated once and for all is a feast that God will throw for his people. In the ancient Near East, the way that you would signal victory is a feast. You can't really feast and celebrate if your enemies have just been wounded and they're regrouping. They have to be gone for good for you to really enjoy that feast. And God uses one of my favorite images in the Bible. God is going to prepare a feast of rich food Full of marrow. And that tells me that heaven is going to be like a, a bowl of ramen noodles. I don't know a single person who has not had a cup of noodles or a pack of ramen. Uh, the ramen we grew up with, with was that MSG mystery seasoning, uh, hot water and either a freeze dried block or a cup of noodles. The ramen was a cheap meal, less than a dollar. Many college students testify that they made it through college eating ramen at 12 a.m. Uh, this type of ramen is not like heaven. It's not like heaven, okay? But about five-ish years ago, uh, real Japanese ramen began to make its way to the States. Nicole and I got to travel to Manhattan, where we had our first bowl of real ramen. Ramen is a, is a wheat noodle cooked in bone marrow broth. It is, the broth is not clear. It is cloudy and milky, but not greasy, which is amazing because bone marrow is essentially fat. It's all fat. Uh, eating that ramen makes you say, whatever I have had, Whatever, whatever I've been eating all my life is not ramen. In heaven, we will look back on the, uh, this life and we, we we're not, we're not going to say that it was a waste or it was useless. Just like cheap ramen noodles, they have a purpose. They're not, it's not useless. But when you taste the real thing, you can never go back. Everything about our lives in God's kingdom in heaven will be so much more full and satisfying. As a young man, uh, I thought that, This is how I thought about heaven. You know, heaven's great, but I got a lot of plans. I got a lot of things to do that I want to see happen. Um, I want to to make that happen first. And that's a little bit like saying, I really want to indulge in the worst version of life. Like, that's what I really want to have an ambition to do. I really want to have the worst, and I, I don't really care about the best. The image of food dripping with marrow is given to us because food like that will always leave you satisfied. It is the best that God has to offer, the fat. And if you want to know what longing for heaven, longing for a hope in heaven looks like, you only need to speak to those among us who have been afflicted most severely on this earth. Uh, I met a a worship leader at camp once, uh, a camp that I used to take a youth group to, and he was afflicted with so many food allergies. Um, And this was before you could get gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free, dairy-free foods that actually tasted good. And so he would have to live with the embarrassment of every time that his family went out to eat, he couldn't have anything, or it was just super bland. And in the camp situation, he had to bring his own food. And when he talked about heaven, he longed for the day that his allergies would be no more, that he could finally eat and be satisfied, not have to worry so much about something so uh, normal as food, still more severe. There was a girl in my youth group who had a, a brain tumor taken out, and it messed up somehow her gastrointestinal processes, so she couldn't even eat um, she had to be fed through these, these bags of fluid. And when they finally did figure out how to get her to eat, she had to release her waste through a tube. And sometimes, I remember, teenage girl, that tube would malfunction, and she would have to run to the bathroom and call her parents to come and pick her up. Listening to individuals like this, and you know among you there are people who suffer with real things. Listening to people talk about the, who are afflicted in this world talk about the hope of heaven, you begin to get a glimpse that this world doesn't have everything that we need, that there, there is a reason to hope for a world to come because this world is broken by sin and death and the signs are so evident. But is there something for us who are healthy, who don't have any physical ailments? Is there something for us as we look forward to the hope of heaven? You bet. Um, those of us who don't live with broken, uh, broken bodies, you know exactly what it is to have uh, sin uh, injure or break your relationships uh, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards gives us this example of love in this world. He says, I want you to imagine a pipe that's been clogged, and the only water that gets, th- some water gets through, that's our love, uh, some water gets through, but uh, that water is like tainted, dirty sewage water. Uh, so that's a Puritan's description of our love here on earth. I think that's pretty pretty nice. Um, and we see that uh, in, in all our relationships between husband and wife, children and their parents, between friends. All these relationships at one time or another are sabotaged by our own selfishness every day. In heaven that clog is removed and our love, brothers and sisters, will flow free for God and for each other. That is what you are looking forward to in heaven. That you will have perfect love for your God who loves you and is faithful to you. You will have perfect love for everyone in God's kingdom that is the hope that god makes when he puts away sin and death and it will be everything will be set right and that is why in heaven we have to as i uh, to celebrate with what isaiah calls aged wine well refined the universal symbol for celebration god is going to do this friends his plans are sure and they will come to pass the last few stanzas of isaiah speak of moab which was a symbol of Israel's enemies, a uh, symbol of Israel's enemies. And Moab is going to be stripped of all its power and all its security. And that tells us, friends, th- the passage ends uh, not with that, that nice vision, but with this reiteration of judgment because it tells us that death does not get the final word. God does. And I needed to know that, especially in this year in 2019. Uh, this year in 2019, by March Three people I knew died. Uh, My cousin, who was a a non Christian, he leaves behind a wife and three grown children. My spiritual mentor uh, from my youth group, um, and a church planner right here in San Jose. My cousin's funeral was a traditional Chinese funeral, which was steeped in ancestor worship and rituals. And it struck me that this would have been my funeral had not God called me to repent of my sins and trust in Jesus. And at this funeral, there was weeping and wailing and pain and sorrow. It was a very vivid display of death and hopelessness. You know how people leave a funeral and they say, well, that was a beautiful service. This was not a beautiful service. My, um, my cousins, uh, it, it just wasn't beautiful. Um, if there wasn't a family member wailing profusely, there was this uncomfortable silence with no words spoken of hope. The two funerals of the Christian men were were just so different. It's not that there weren't tears. There were. There were so many tears. But both funerals were a display of all the lives that they touched and all the love that they gave to those that they left behind on earth. Both had a time of thanksgiving to the Jesus they trusted in. Both had so much to say about the future hope that they spent their lives telling other people about. On a personal note, both men, for different reasons, are the reason that I stand before you as a, here as a pastor, a minister of the gospel in the Bay Area. Craig Ng taught me what it looked like to love and follow Jesus as a young man. And he was the mouthpiece that God used uh, to suggest that God might be calling me to be a pastor. Jameson Stockhouse loved San Jose so much that when he started his church plant, he insisted that a college ministry be started in conjunction with his ministry And that college ministry became Reform University Fellowship at San Jose State. Two men left this earth, having done so much good and shared so much of the love of Jesus that their funerals could only be described as recounting a recounting of God's light through them to bless this world. Both of these men hoped deeply in heaven, and their funerals were clear evidence that hope in heaven brought so much earthly good to so many souls. And so today, I stand on their shoulders and say in the name of the living God, to everyone here who wants a true hope for the future, if you really want a world without sin and death threatening you, God says, come, trust in my son, trust in his death to bring forgiveness to you, trust in his resurrection to bring you eternal life, and he will lead you to the heaven that your soul needs and wants. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you help us to understand this deep hope of heaven and how it impacts every single aspect of our lives. I pray for everyone here that none of us would leave this room without knowing the great hope that you have given to us in Jesus for free by your grace. Help us to trust in you, those who have known you for a long time and those who need to take a step of faith today to know you in this moment, to have a true and real future. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.